You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. This is the kind of world that I'm kind of preparing to invest in and trying to wrap my head around a lot, you know. Um, you know, I also see a world where you have China, Russia, now Turkey seems to be kind of moving over to that side. Um, you know, these these economies are kind of making a play at, at pushing the U.S. out of Eurasia, uh, primarily using geoeconomics, but we, we don't know where it goes from there. And so I see, you know, more tension building up around the world, more of a multipolar society, friction between those governments, maybe a breakdown in global system. I mean, the internet could even splinter. And there's a lot of talk about of, of what that would look like. Um, and, and governments in their, within their spheres, as a, spheres of influence playing a much bigger role in terms of, you know, resource allocation or, you know, allowing technology to come through and taxing it really heavily. So I think the rules are changing. I actually, I have a crazy structure for this that um, you know, I can tell you about that uh, I think would be interesting. You know, um, one of the ways that, um, one of the only ways that you could invest in robotics today if you're interested is um, there's, there's an ETF that kind of gives you exposure to some of these themes. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of limited ways to play it and, and it's tough right now. But I think one of the things that would be really interesting, especially in a world that's so starved for yield, if, if that natural rate of interest stays low, there's gonna be you know, more and more demand for, for things that are able to kick off yield. Wouldn't it be interesting if instead of companies you know, investing in, in building their out and, and owning their whole robotics fleets, kind of like you know, energy companies that invested in their own infrastructure, um, what, if, what if those those kind of big fleets of robotics in different industries, what if they were dropped down into uh, diversified structures like MLPs? And then those firms basically paid a fee to use that technology or use that hardware. And the, the MLP-like structure whose you know, job it was was basically to hold those things in maintenance and they took care of it. And then it generated this cash flow stream kind of like, you know, passing oil. So I think it's a fascinating argument. One of the things that jumps into my head is the cost of the particular robotics. So like if the cost yeah. is sufficiently low, then I don't think that necessarily works because the the user of the technology will go, you know what, I'm just... So as an example, go back to printers, right? Remember when we would go out to the local store and get something printed, right? You go to the print shop, Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd have those giant big whirring printers and you'd get, you know, your copies printed. So there was, they were basic, we were just outsourcing our printing and you'd have these localized and there'd be one every five kilometers, whatever it was, it all worked until the cost of their printer collapsed and now everybody's got an inkjet sitting on their desk if yeah, they use no, one at all. Out. So so the cost of that particular robotics, if it's sufficiently low, then I think it just, it it doesn't necessarily make sense to to have that as a like in an MLP where you've got a higher cost. Then I think that that does make sense, and because if you're a business, you're you're just looking for margin expansion and doing that as profitably as you can. And it yeah. would make sense that you've got again at scale of economies, 
but it's there's two fighting forces one is decentralization which is what all of this technology brings and the the other is the scale of economies that still exists because the cost of that technology might be somewhat prohibitive and if you if you lease it as opposed to buying it you can get more market share than your competitor might who's decided to allocate the capital the capex to going and buying it it almost seems like there's right now you're in an environment where it would make sense to lease it rather than buying it right and so you could have this you know these kind of centralized structures that own you know a lot of those against different in different uh, industries and which uh, which was able to kick off pretty attractive cash flows for owners and you know in this transition or interim period that might make sense but as your capability goes up and your cost goes down like you're saying the incentive for uh, for leasing over buying goes away but but remember we're also living in a world where the rules are changing and government plays you know may be playing a much greater role it may be that the market could lead you to structures like this in a short term and that it would make a lot of sense but over the long term you know maybe the us government deems that it wants its pension funds to own you know the means of production maybe we actually go in that direction i'm not saying it's a good thing but no it's not about i mean we're here to try and identify what's more what the probability of something happening is and you know i get this a lot like i'll make comments on the blog and people will come back and go oh you know you can't say that or you you know you, i disagree with that but they're coming at it from a point of view of what they would want to have and you know i always go back and say look i'm a market observer i don't I, what i want to happen in the market is completely irrelevant the market doesn't give a flying shit what i think yeah. so it's important to differentiate what you want to have happen yeah. From, from what is likely to happen. The, one of the things with the technology, I'm just going to bring this up because I went to a seminar. I wasn't even really a seminar. It was a, it was a meeting with a, a number of intellectual property lawyers. They were dealing, it was all around China. And one of the data points that came out of this, which I was not aware of, was the, the one country in the world worth that is spending more money is now the fastest growing country in the world with respect to trademarks and intellectual property is China. Yeah, it is. They've gone really whole hog in trying to accelerate that part of the economy, which makes a lot of sense because you come back to what we were discussing, emerging markets are, are potentially in for a real hard time as technology takes away their means of growth. And so I think, they're doing the right thing. It's just it's a question of timing, whether they're going to be able to get to a point of sustainability via revenues, essentially from intellectual property. Yeah, and you know, this is a trend that, uh, that you know, I wrote about in my book that I put out last year on China with John Malden. So you do have this huge increase in, uh, in patent filings and trademarks and industrial designs um, filed by the Chinese. Um, there's a big kind of emphasis on this you have to ask yourself how much of it is organic is is real innovation and how much of it is just because the government's mandated it which i certainly think a lot of it is there's a lot of things where you're, you're you know just simply tweaking kind of existing patents or trademarks or industrial designs and it's not really a big leap forward but it, there's there's other cases where there is some of it that's real so i think um i think you know the the productivity lifting kind of wealth generating capacity of it is probably 
um, exaggerated, um, but they are trying to move in that direction. And they are the biggest adopters of robotics technology in the world right now. They're buying it hand over fist, and it's one reason why you know Chinese firms trying to buy the German robot maker KUKA right now. Um, what I think is interesting about about that, and you know, you bring it up, is um, is you if you look at, at China right now, they're in a position where you know you have kind of probably bare minimum 15% non-performing loan ratio in the banks. That's easily four and a half trillion, uh, but could be more. And, you know, that's what the IMF is saying actually right now. So, you know, the actual numbers could be a lot worse. They're assuming about a 40% recovery rate. So you have multiple trillions in that banking system that have to be uh, covered or paid for. China's slowing growth is, is because of massive misallocation and huge debts which are weighing on the system, you can't really get good credit mobilized in any big way toward, you know, the, the new economy that they want, you know, to be driving, um, you know, the consumers uh, being weighed down by, you know, wage pressures, um, by, you know, some of the slowdown and gapping down in these, in these places. Um, you've got technology, some of which is real, but a lot of which is, is, is still, you know, not, not, you know, big breakthroughs. So it's exaggerated and, and capital can get mass misallocated there. So you've got kind of this, this problem of credit being able to, to fuel a new area of growth. And the only way to deal with that is to recap the banking system. Meanwhile, while, while China's kind of ignoring this or, or, or they're trying to kind of co cover it up uh, is, is a better way to say it. Um, you know, Beijing isn't, isn't actively recapping the banks yet. What they're doing is they're pumping money constantly into the banks so that um, they can keep rolling over bad debts that aren't giving them cash flow. Basically, all the People's Bank of China is doing is keeping the banks liquid. And so what that's doing is pushing the M2 money supply higher. And, and that's why their foreign exchange reserves stay the same. So basically, they have this big growth problem. It's because credit is bogged down and can't get mobilized in the system. So growth keeps slowing. To deal with that, they're pushing the M2 money supply higher. And foreign exchange reserves are staying the same. So they're losing their ability to maintain exchange rate stability. They have to let that currency go. And you know, they can fight this and lose a lot of resources and, and long-term they won't have what they need to really go into a new area of growth. But if they were to let the currency go, this is a roundabout way of saying, if they were able to let the currency go, I actually think there's some kind of exciting possibility because they could do a big People's Bank of China recap on their banking system, let the currency go. They would have to be able to support household incomes and, and wealth in you know, a high inflation period that would follow a big drop in the room and B. But if they're able to do that, then they could mobilize that refreshed banking system into the Belt and Road, where they're trying to basically help other emerging markets deal with these problems, help create, you know, new organic demand. Um, and, and really what they're trying to do, you know, for is create demand for Chinese companies and firms by getting other emerging markets to go on these credit binges that may or may not prove fruitful. But it's, it's not like, you know, Japan's roads to nowhere. It's, it's this silk road that leads to somewhere. This is the ancient trade route that, that used to be the backbone of the global economy. And they're saying it can be again. And if you connect to Europe, who's to say it wouldn't unleash, you know, big growth potential over time and unlock some of the promise in Eurasia. So the narrative kind of works there. And I think that they would put a lot of money into that. Maybe it'll work. It probably won't, but you won't know for a very long time. They get to extend it out. And other area that they would put, be putting money to work, like you're saying, because they need something more sustainable driven by intellectual property, is R&D. And I think the entire future of 
whether China becomes a superpower, whether they can pull it off, it depends on their ability to make this transition, float their currency, refresh their banking system, because if they can't make another big push in R&D and into the Belt and Road, they're done. They're just going to stagnate like Japan, and the party probably can't survive. But if they can make it, then that changes the entire global outlook. And it's interesting because it's the exact trends that you're talking about here. You've got two aspects. One is the financial side, and then the other is the what Joe Sixpack looks at. And that's kind of more the political side of things. From a political standpoint, it's an absolute no-brainer for them to just let their currency drop and float. And I think that that, you know, when you look at the, the social structure in China, that's what the political party really needs to be paying possibly more attention to than yep. the financial side, because that's what keeps them in power, right? Whereas in the US, you could argue that the financial side has more of a weighting because people are concerned about you know, their own finances. There's more involvement by the average Joe Sixpack in the financial economy in the US than there is in China. The one, so, so the problem with that, though, is that, um, is that you, know, you can only defy the market for so long. And one of the things that, you know, you'll get in big trouble in, in Beijing if you say this out loud, is that the, the Soviet Russia collapsed in the middle of its 13th five-year plan. I think about a year into its 13th five-year plan, which is exactly where we are right now with China. Um, and when it comes to the currency, I agree with you that, you know, that they're focused on maintaining social stability and that they don't want to take the risk of letting it go. But they're right up against the point where their capital controls have failed. They've, they've failed to stem the tide there. They found that their capital outflows are really a function of how strong or weak the dollar is right now. And so, you know, they have this window of time where they can do it. You're almost past G20. You're almost past the SDR reallocation. You're almost past the U.S. election. So you could have a time frame where you could have favorable conditions to do it. But if they hold on and don't let the currency go because they're afraid of social instability, they are they are sealing the deal on profound social instability down the road. I, I agree. No, I, I think that the lesser of two evils is to let the currency go because on the political side, they can, they can quite easily go and say, you know what, this is what everybody wanted. This is what the West has been telling us to do. So yeah. from that aspect on an international playing field, they basically look like the good guys. By yeah, letting the currency. And, the Americans and, suddenly changed their mind, but but we have to do this and they've been, they know we had to do this and they told us to do this. Yeah, and the Americans won't like it, but that's not the point. The point is to their own populace, they can be joining the free world, so to speak. They do um, look like good guys, yeah. And then, you know, in terms of social instability, what you get when you have a currency collapse like that, it doesn't even need to be a collapse, it could, it could be somewhat more gradual, is that you have a much more short, sharp shock than you do if you if they do the opposite, which is holding on, as you mentioned. If they hold on, then you have this protracted decline that just it fuels instability, it fuels civil strife. And you know and what the worst is? The worst is when you get that long, drawn out stagnation, that slowdown that just hurts and hurts and hurts and builds up. Well, what it does is it and fuels their ability to defend, and you get the sharp punch anyway. It completely fuels distrust. And then you have this, then you get real political instability because you have a, a burgeoning population or citizenry who are going, you know what, we just don't trust you guys anymore. Whereas yeah. if, they, if they can come out with a narrative that is to be, you know, for China to be great, so and so on and so on, 
this is what we need to do. It's a little bit like when you get yeah. an election cycle, it's the perfect time to give that short punch, right? So whether it's Hillary or Trump, or whoever comes in the US, at the, the first year of, of them being in power, that is when, they, when they're best placed to punch, to go out and have, whether it's a currency devaluation, whether it's whatever it is, where you have that short pain, because you can quite easily turn around and blame it on, the, on your predecessors, right? And then foster some, uh, some goodwill coming out of the back of it. So China doesn't have that issue. They don't have that ability because they're a one-party state. But the same narrative is true. If they can create a message whereby they can say, look, this is what, this is what we have to do to make China great again sort of thing and deliver that punch, it's, it's much more manageable than, than letting it drag out, which just fuels instability. That's why I think that we're approaching some really key dates. You know, China, Beijing is never going to, if they can avoid it, they're never going to, you know, let their currency drop um, the year that they're, you know, scheduled to host the G20 and in the run up to that. You know, they're already doing some pretty heavy PR control um, because they don't want the embarrassment of having to discuss the South China Sea issue with the G20. You know, they're trying to redirect the attention to the Belt and Road and a plan for reviving global growth. And they can be this great partner who's ex you know, exceptionally experienced there. So, you know, waiting until after that, if they were able and, and they had the resources to do it, it's, it's, it's fairly obvious now, I think, with some help from other major central banks. But, but they've gotten past that. And, and that meeting comes up on September the, the 4th and September the 5th. And then the, the, big, the big event where I think they could make this kind of narrative with the Chinese people is the renminbi getting included in the IMF's SDR basket on October the 1st. That's where you can say, look, this has been accepted in. Part of the precondition of what we yeah. agreed with IMF is you have to let it go. And this is going to be painful, but this is the path to national revival. And Absolutely. we've just accomplished that key step where now it's time to do these things. You nailed it. That's, that's exactly it. It gives, them the, it gives them all of the fodder that they need to do what they want to do. Because if they just went out and did it, then yeah. it would be, look, remember, Asians are, are very face, face is a massive issue, saving face. And so they don't want to do that, certainly to their own citizenry and certainly yeah. to the rest of the world. This gives them all of the bandwidth that they need to be able to do that and save face. I, yeah. You know, what's really interesting to me about this too, is that what they need, everything you're saying, is, this is playing perfectly into saving face of having this strong, powerful narrative of national revival, of, of making China great again, not on a 50-year time horizon, but going back to you know, the days when China was the greatest, most powerful civilization on the planet. I mean, you had the peak of, of Roman power occurring at about the same time as, as the peak of, of the Han Chinese, you know, on the other side of the planet. I mean, this is, this is an old, powerful civilization, and they're saying, look, we're going to put ourselves back on it. And at the same time, you're not just talking about reviving China, you're actually reviving that ancient trade network, you know, back to, back to Europe. And what's so interesting to me about it is not only do you have the pieces kind of falling into place to talk about, you know, making some bold steps for the Chinese, but you have Europe, which is in an increasingly desperate position that needs a way forward to find, you know, a new way to grow and kind of a new path. And from a, both the geopolitical and from just a purely economics perspective, 
opting into that kind of belt and road vision looks like like it, it, if China was ever going to get Europe to be part of that, it's now. Yeah. And it's all at the same time. It's so funny because you've got the, you know, globalization has brought this connectivity that we've never had before. You know, on the one side of things, I can see that that can fragment and it can, you know, uh, protectionism can come in really, really quickly. Yeah. At the same time, you've got these global powers that have all got their own issues and it's almost like there's a collective or there is a potential for a collective inclusiveness of some nature that can help them all. And they're all looking for, for ways out. So, you know, it, why it, couldn't you get both? I mean, why couldn't you get, you know, and, and I know a lot of this depends on the politics, the situation. If, if we vote for a Trump, and maybe I'm reading this incorrectly, but if I, I think if we vote for Trump, we're likely focus, focusing on more U.S. isolationism that, you know, maybe we can extend the hope of, you know, over time building into, you know, into, you know, more of a North American block and not just completely pulling away even from, you know, our northern and, and southern neighbors in Canada and Mexico. But, you know, you're, you're very focused on, on America as a unit, as a market, less trade from abroad, you know, more writing on our own demand. If it's Hillary, what I'm afraid it looks like is America makes a more concerted effort not to lose its place as, you know, basically global hegemon and tries to contain China's rise and limit that. Um, so in one case, you know, the Americans step back and they, they, they don't interfere as much. Um, we could even step away from, from Europe and from NATO and Eurasia kind of grows together and, and you see if this works. It's like, what China's done over the last 10 years, maybe, but for the continent, this big credit boom that maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. And then you have America kind of doing our thing. Or you could have this place where America's trying to limit and stop those things from happening without really offering the rest of the world a great deal. It's a pivotal time because you've got serious political change coming, both yeah. in Europe, both in the U.S., and then there's the Asian bloc, which is China and Japan. They're a little bit different. There's not the same sort of political change necessarily coming there, but there's a lot of change coming due to pure economic forces that are, yeah. that are pushing them in that fashion. And then they need to integrate with these new players that are, that are stepping onto the playing field in Europe and the UK and the US. That just promises us a lot of new mechanics yeah. and... When I look at it from a trader's perspective, it just tells me that you've got potentially much more uncertainty and volatility. You know, you go all the way back to what we were discussing at the start, market pricing. When yeah. I look at the market right now, the market doesn't seem to be pricing a lot of these, these things. And, and they're coming in the next months, years. It's, yeah. not like they're, it's not like they're sort of 10 years out. This is, you know, these are events that are literally unfolding in front of our eyes. I'm... I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm scratching my head a little bit in terms of how the market's pricing assets. And to a certain extent, I feel like I can understand it because it's one of these situations of you know, where do you go, right? You know, you know it as well as anybody else how important the US dollar is for determining kind of the price of everything. Where I look at this right now, you're right, we're seeing it before our eyes. You've got prices that are clearly overextended You've got volatility that is very, very low. Um, 
and we don't really know the true price of anything in a real economy to make real allocation decisions because it's been you know so distorted so you haven't you have a situation where um, it does look like you know global growth is getting more unstable if the dollar breaks decisively higher or if it breaks lower like if there's a big intervention a weak dollar policy maybe um, kind of like the plaza accord that could unleash you know major global stability just as easily and just backfire so you know any any decisive move up or down in the dollar i think unleashes you know instability if it's up it's in if it's on the upside it's in china and commodity producers and emerging markets and you know even the us gets thrown in a recession if it's a very weak dollar then you know it's likely europe and and, and maybe japan so you know you have you have a situation where it's very very difficult to maintain uh, growth and stability in the world right now and financial markets just aren't priced for that so I think there's a lot of downside the, the thing that I worry about though is that there does seem to be an interest uh, among you know some of the major governments and and the IMF and and if you read you know some of the things that even Ben Bernanke or, or guys like Ken Rogoff people who are very influential in policy circles are putting out there seems to be an interest in allowing the dollar to play less of a role in the world on giving up some of its reserve share that could look like a lot of different ways um but one of the things that's being proposed is you know making the sdr a bigger part of the global system and if it's naturally adopted that's a 10 20 30 year process and it takes a very long time but one of the things that's been put out is the idea of a substitution fund where china gives its treasuries to the imf in exchange for its market value in sdr rather than just dumping treasuries and um you know that's the kind of thing that could create you know a massive sharp fast liquidity injection into the world that I, I think it's very difficult to know how that would affect markets i mean you could conceivably go through something like that and this kind of global inflationary impulse that, that's hard to predict so for me it's not just as simple as um, this as expecting the same things as we've seen in a series of business cycles over the last 50 years and especially the you know in the post 71 uh, kind of unanchored dollar period you could you could get that change in the system that could give us some really unpredictable things so you know I'm just trying to to respect history here and respect the uncertainty and get through that and prepare for it but when I look on the other side I mean I see GE preparing for a world where you know, you might have more trade protectionism or, or the world broken up into, into blocks or regions and, and they're preparing, you know, localization strategies rather than manufacturing in low cost centers and transporting it to, you know, consumer demand areas in the world uh, to those markets. They're talking about just manufacturing next to the market, selling into it and even, you know, keeping their capital in separate buckets if, if they're not able to freely move capital. I mean, you, you have businesses that are already planning to adapt and go with it when we have a better idea of what the rules are. So maybe we get a chance to buy in at dramatically cheaper prices. Maybe we have to adapt and figure it out if there's this big bang monetary reform, the dollar's no longer the same role, but it's incredibly unstable and, and there's just question marks everywhere. The last thing that I'll mention, which you brought up with respect to the Chinese taking their treasuries and putting them into a basket of the SDRs, yeah. we know that there's, there's, a, there's a massive debt issue which has to be resolved in some shape or form. Yeah. It's kind of like, I wouldn't say on the fringe, but there's a lot of people saying, oh, it's, just, it's all going to collapse and you know, gold's going to go to $25,000. We're going to have you know, rioting in the streets, all this kind of stuff. 
And that's fine. That all sells newsletters maybe or whatever it is that guys are after, but it doesn't seem realistic to me. Firstly, if, if gold went to $25,000, then the currency is gone. It, it, then it doesn't, does it make any difference if it's $25,000 or $50,000? Your currency has, has lost any credibility. So you're dealing with a completely different paradigm. And have, you read, um, have you read Ken Rogoff's book, The Curse of Cash, that just came out by chance? No, I haven't. I've read his other work, but I haven't read that. I mean, this is a guy who's, uh, who, who's elite, who you know, I'm told could play a significant role, maybe even with the Fed, if Hillary were to win as president. He's talking about, you know, about introducing, you know, moving to a cashless society, having maybe a, a more government-controlled version of a Bitcoin or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you talk about that freeing up monetary policy to go more deeply in negative interest rates and work. But, you know, I mean, one of the things they don't mention, if you go to a cashless society, the whole concept of reserve currency, I mean, that's a big shift because there's, there's no way for, you know, large denominated dollar bills to be circulated in, in the black market anymore, which is a big support for it. In order for negative interest rates to work, not only do you have to have a cashless society, but you have to have capital controls. So, I mean, you're talking about totally changing the way those things fit together and the kind of newsletter writers out there, they're, I, what I feel like they're doing is extrapolating what you're seeing in the markets and these trends and assuming that governments will not step in and give you something very different. And the government, people who are influential in government are already telling you where they want to go. Yeah, that, that's a huge mistake. But coming back to what you mentioned with the Chinese putting their money into, say, an SDR or something like that. Yeah. If you go back and you think about the SNL crisis, they basically just created an off-balance sheet entity, an SPV, and then they just chucked all the shit in there and then sold it off through that, through that trust structure. And something like that, where you take, you package up all of these unpayables, essentially, mm-hmm. that could, if you're thinking about an SDR and a, and a restructuring of reserve currencies and things like that, it makes a lot of sense. If I was in policy, I'd be sitting there going, okay, Let's look at the elephant in the room, right? How do we deal with huge elephant? And it's a, it's a European elephant, and it's a US elephant, and it's a Japanese elephant, and it's a Chinese elephant. You know, what do we do with the zoo? And yeah. something of that nature, where you where you would create an entity that you can literally just shift all of these assets into, would make a huge amount of sense. I don't exactly know how that would play out, but you have to think that these discussions are being take are taking place because these are not unintelligent people. Right? No, and look, this isn't, um, this, this is not the stuff of conspiracy theory. Although, you know, someone who is not actively following the, the discussion at the IMF and among major governments, if they're not following these things, it might sound like this, but you know, there are, there are, there's a very public dialogue right now among major government officials, finance ministers, central bankers with the IMF about, you know, this question of how are we going to reform the system? These ideas are all over the place for you to read and, and learn about. And while I don't pretend to be an expert here, I mean, as, as kind of a broad global macro investor, you know, I, I try to be a generalist here and try to understand the things that seem like they matter. But I've spent a lot of time digging through and, and, and trying to learn, you know, at least what the conversation is. And it's, it's, all, it's all right out in the open. And, and frankly, if you go back to, to past periods where the system has evolved, whether it was, you know, Bretton Woods or, or 1971 with, you know, floating the dollar um, or, or whether it was the Plaza Accord, 
uh, or uh, even in the you know early 2000s when you know there was intervention to support the euro as it was emerging but but really starting to melt down i mean these things happen all the time and it has the potential to change the game in a in a huge way so i've got five minutes i've got one last question for you worth okay <laughs> give yourself a 10-year time frame yeah and for protection not necessarily for profit where would you be putting cash or is it cash for a 10-year time frame it could be a trade could be yeah anything look i'm i'm a little old-fashioned and after we sat here and talked about monetary reform you know i i think that if i had to choose the next 10 years and this might be you know rocky over the next two or three or even five but over the next 10 years i would gravitate more toward real assets and i would gravitate toward you know things like gold i i think that there is uh that there's a case to be made for real estate in some areas in some places of the world you know real estate in texas which hasn't gotten bid up so aggressively you know it makes a lot more sense to me than real estate you know, in Vancouver or Seattle or, you know, Hong Kong or some of the silly areas where it's gotten bit up. But, but just as taking, you know, kind of a simple place, um, I think gold is really interesting. And I think a lot of the miners, although they've, you know, run pretty significantly year to date, I think they're still pretty dramatically undervalued if you look at this longer time horizon. I think that that trade probably has a ways to run. Yeah, I mean, they're up sort of, what, about 100% over the last 12 months. But then, the, you know, if you look at the index, it was down 80, almost 83%, right? So, uh, you know, on a historical basis, one could certainly make the argument that we've got, we've got a decent run still ahead of us, certainly if the sort of uncertainty that we've just been discussing for the last couple of hours plays through. Frankly, I think, I think that you're probably set to to see a pullback um, in some of these positions. And, and I think that that could create for, you know, some more interesting kind of entry points. But if you just look at, at you know, the recent run in gold miners compared to, you know, some of the historical rallies, I mean, it's pretty easy to make the case that they could double or triple from here just in, you know, the next five years or so. And if you get any real monetary reform, or if, you know, I, I would, I'm, I feel very confident on a 10-year horizon that this dollar rally will be over and that you're, you're, especially if it goes higher, we're likely to see much, much, much easier policies come through. And, you know, you might remember just looking at the trend of the trade-weighted dollar over time, this is a downward trend. So the more you weaken you know, the dollar, I think the more supportive that is for gold. And, and I think miners are leveraged to that. So, you know, over this long term, you know, a, a lot of things in the real asset space look interesting, but that's, that's one of the simpler ones that, that, that honestly, it seems like a no brainer over, over a decent time horizon. I'm with you on that one. I think we're, uh, we're definitely on the same page. So I um, want to thank you for your time with, it's been a fascinating conversation and a lot of fun. Great talking with you, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Let's um, let's definitely do it again. I've got um, unfortunately because I could keep going for hours here, but I've got a, a phone call in two minutes with with a, a portfolio company that 
No, I, I'd love to, man. I'm actually about 30 minutes past when I planned the co-op too, but yeah, it was just a lot of fun talking with you. So, um, well, let's, let's definitely connect again maybe next week or something. It's, no, like, it's cool. This is not what I expected at all. And it's so much better than what I expected. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm really thrilled to chat. You know, I, I like the way you, you think about things and, and, and kind of value the way you come at it. Cause you know, I'm, very much the same man so let's talk anytime on camera or off and uh, or i guess off off mic or off and uh you know I'm, I'm glad to know you likewise man i really appreciate your time and um definitely at some point when i'm over in the states we'll have to have a face-to-face -face. come to texas anytime we'll have <laughs> some fun cool all okay, right man. i'm gonna hop i'll speak to you soon all right catch you later Bye. again cheers Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.